0: Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, let's turn in our Bibles, if you will, with me to Luke chapter three. And we are studying verse by verse through Luke's Gospel. And last week, as you will recall, we found the only passage in all the Bible that gave us any indication at all about what the childhood of Jesus was like. And that only one snippet when he was 12 years old. Remember that Jesus had traveled the 80 miles from Nazareth with not only his family, but his extended family and friends in a large caravan to partake in the Passover festival. Eight day period there in the life of Jerusalem And after the Passover was over, the caravan made their way back to Nazareth. They got 24 hours away and realized Jesus wasn't with them. And Mary and Joseph hastily made their way back to Jerusalem where they found Jesus in the temple. And he was listening to the rabbis teach, but he was also questioning them. The indication is he was teaching through the Socratic method. Jesus no doubt at that time had come to understand his place in the world, that he was the Messiah. And yet, as we left it last week, he willingly submitted his will to the authority of Mary and Joseph and went with them back to Nazareth. And we don't hear anything more about him until this chapter 3 of Luke. And so if this chapter were being made into a movie, at this point on the screen would come up a sign that said 18 years later. Because Luke, as a historian, simply fast-forwards the events from the time that Jesus was 12 to the time that he's 30. And we come now to verse 1 of Luke chapter three. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness and he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching and bab- the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough roads smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized. And they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. And some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. And the Lord had his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now, if you have a Bible, similar to the one that I'm holding in my right hand, It has both the Old and New Testaments. And in between the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, and the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew, there should be a blank white page. And you need to think of that blank white page as 400 years of silence from heaven. God did not send a prophet to Israel for 400 years. And then upon the scene comes John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament Prophets And John came in the spirit and power of Elijah according to the Lord Jesus. And he had a very specific purpose. His father Zacharias proclaimed that purpose when he held John in his arms when he was only eight days old. And he says this, you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. Though John's life was short and his ministry was small in comparison to others that stretched for decades, He made an incredible impact on the kingdom of God. In fact, Jesus Christ called him the greatest ever born of woman up until that point. Well, let's look at this prophet. But before we do, I want to give you uh, what, what I say every time we're about to study a famous biblical character. The Bible is not about John the Baptist, is it? John, like Elijah and Elisha and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah that came before him, was the means through which God proclaimed his own story. The Bible is about God, and it reveals his eternal redemptive plan. But there are some great men and women in the Bible that we would do well to study, and John the Baptist is one of them. He was a man's man. He spoke truth to authority. He was uh, not too concerned with fashion nor nutrition. He lived out in the wilderness. The scripture says that uh, his garment was rough, and that he lived off the land, but he spoke the truth every time he had the opportunity. He preached one message every time he preached, and that was repentance. And yet he was a man. There were moments of weakness in his life. We see him in prison sending word to Jesus, are you he or do we look for another? In other words, I'm suffering here. It's time to get on with the mission. But Jesus did not rebuke him. He praised him. And so what Luke does as a historian, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, in chapter three, he describes the setting chronologically, historically. And so this is what he says. He says it was the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. So Luke is writing into a setting in which the Roman Empire had spread its tentacles all over the known world. When Jesus was born, remember the emperor was a man by the name of Caesar Augustus. And by this point, years later, a new emperor has come onto the scene, Tiberius. And we're told that Tiberius began his reign in 11 AD. And so this is 15 years into that. And so 15 plus 11 is 26. And so this is on about 26 AD. He gives further instructions about the historical setting. He says this was when Pontius Pilate was the governor of that part of the world. You see, uh, the Romans used to set up puppet kings. And Herod the Great was one of those kings that answered to the Roman emperor. And when he died... He had three sons, two of which were somewhat capable. One was a total mess. And the one that was a total mess had his kingdom taken from him. And in its place, governors were set up, of which Pontius Pilate was one. But he says that one of the sons, Antipas, ruled in the part of Galilee. We know where Galilee is, north of Jerusalem. He had a brother named Philip who also ruled a region near there. And then he adds the added benefit of another man, not their brother, Lysanias, who was Tetrarch of Abilene. And Abilene was uh, west of Weatherford out on I 20. (laughs) I've done that in all three services to see if you're listening, and you are, thankfully. But then he talks about the Jewish leaders. John was Jewish, and he was preaching in a Jewish setting. He says that uh, this was the time when Annas and Caiaphas were serving as high priests. Now, you probably know that there was only one high priest at a time, and he was appointed for life, sort of like the Supreme Court. But the Romans had changed that, and they would pull down and raise up high priests from time to time. And so uh, Caiaphas who had been elected high priest, was removed from office, and his son-in-law at this time, Caiaphas, was serving. But everyone knew, the Jewish people knew, that Caiaphas was really the authority. And so oftentimes where one is mentioned, the other is also mentioned as high priest. Now, both John and Jesus spent their youths in relative anonymity. We already said that Jesus lived way up in Nazareth, 80 miles from Jerusalem. And 80 miles today doesn't seem like much, Read an article just last week about super commuters, some of whom travel back and forth one way over 100 miles every day to work. Uh, But that wasn't in those days. Those days the roads were rough, people traveled primarily by foot. And so if you were 80 miles away from the center of activity, uh, you were in the backwater. And Jesus was. And so he could grow up really removed from society. But John, even more so, because the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 80 tells us that he lived in the wilderness. Out in the desert, apparently in solitude. You know that Zacharias and Elizabeth were older when he was born. So likely they died when he was very young. And and so here he is living out in the wilderness. And the scripture says in verse 2 that the word of God came to John. Out in the wilderness. I don't take from that that he found a scroll rolled up in a cave somewhere I take it that God's calling came to John, just as it had to many of the Old Testament prophets when they were doing their everyday life and the Word of God would come to them and tell them to, to go and to preach. As we saw Amos, who was a tender of figs, right? And a shepherd, and God called him out to go into the northern kingdom and preach a message of, of judgment. We see Elijah, who we know nothing about. All of a sudden, this Tishbite Emerges on the scene and is speaking to to, to King Ahab with authority. And Jesus said that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He came in that same attitude of speaking power to authority. He came as this solitary figure upon the scene as the Word of God came to him. And he had a very specific purpose. Verse 3 says, he came into all the districts around the Jordan, that is the Jordan River, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He was primarily a preacher. To preach means to proclaim a message, specifically in this case, from God. And his message was repentance, baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Now this is a Baptist church. And so we talk a lot about baptism here. The word baptizo in the Greek always means the same thing. It means to totally immerse, to surround, to inundate And so that's how John baptized. We take it out in the river. He put people completely under the water. But it's not teaching here that baptism is what was saving them. They were being baptized because of. That's what that word for means. Because of the forgiveness of sins. The same thing Peter said in Acts chapter 3. When he says repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. It's not the water that saves. If you know anything about the Jordan River, it was muddy and and polluted and dirty. There was nothing special about that water. It was the symbol, as it is today, of God's forgiveness coming to people through repentance and faith. That was the message of John. And the imagery of John baptizing Jewish people could not be missed. By the way, it says here he was baptizing not only Jewish people, but Roman soldiers and tax collectors, people that polite company wouldn't be caught dead with. And yet here they all were together in the Jordan River being baptized. The The significance of that is not to be missed. John was clearly saying that all people personally need to be forgiven and cleansed from sins, including Jews. Now that was the message that Paul said was a stumbling block to most of his peers in the Jewish faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says the message of the cross is to the Greeks foolishness. That is these high-minded philosophers who were Greek couldn't get their mind around God, the creator, condescending to taking on human flesh and dying in the place of men. That, That didn't make any sense to them. And to the Jews, the fact that they would have to be forgiven on the same basis of a Greek tripped them up every time. And so here they were in John's day coming out, Jew and Gentile alike. And what John had to do for both groups is to disabuse them of a works-based salvation. The truth is that most people you and I know today who were lost, if they're really pressed, would give you a works-based salvation answer. If you ask them, how do you go to heaven? Most of them would say things like, well, well, you, you do good things. You'd be a good neighbor. You'd be a good father, a mother, or child. That's not it. And if you were to ask a Jewish person in John's day, how are you made right with God? They would say, well, you show them your pedigree. We can trace our ancestry back to Abraham who had this covenant promise with God. And they might say, we, we keep the law and we keep the ceremonies. And, and so God treats us differently than everyone else. If you'd ask a Roman... How do you go to heaven? They might not even understand that concept, but, but they would know the idea of making sacrifices and giving money. John disabuses both groups and says you have to repent. What does it mean to repent? Well, repentance in its essence is the renouncing of sin. And to renounce something, you have to recognize its existence, right? And so you renounce sin, you turn from it, and you turn to God in faith. Repentance comes as the Holy Spirit opens one's eyes to his own sinfulness. We call this conviction, right? The Bible says that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, that is its presence, and its sinfulness, and righteousness, that is the righteousness we lack that only God has, and the judgment to come. That one day God will hold us accountable for the way that we lived, and so repentance comes as the Holy Spirit opens one's eyes to one's own sinfulness and gives that person the faith to believe on Christ resulting in salvation. John's life in ministry also fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, even as Jesus did. Here Luke points out a passage from Isaiah chapter 40, by the way, written nearly 800 years before John's birth. And this is what it says. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make its path straight. Every ravine will be filled, and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will be made straight, and the rough road smooth. Zacharias predicted that John would be a forerunner of the Lord. A forerunner was a messenger who was sent out in advance of the coming king. If a king was about to go out and visit his constituents, he would send out the forerunner to tell the people, You better get ready, prepare the meals, fill in the potholes. Make sure the bridges are all in working condition. John was not telling people to fill in the potholes. He was telling them to repent of sins. To get not your roads ready, but to get your, what, your heart ready. Because the king is on his way. Now, John always understood this, that he was not the king. Right? In fact, some of the people began to wonder, is John the Messiah? And John denied it and said, I'm not even worthy to unlatch his sandals, And when Jesus came upon the scene, he made it very clear that it was John's time to pull away from the spotlight. He must increase and I must what? Decrease. That's why I love John so much. He understood his role in the world and he fulfilled it. The forerunner, the voice crying in the wilderness. John did that literally, didn't he? And I think one of the reasons... That John preached and baptized in the wilderness is because Jerusalem was the epicenter of everything he wanted to disabuse them of. Jerusalem is where the Pharisees taught works righteousness. Jerusalem was the place of the sacrifices. Jerusalem was the place where they were taught, as children of Abraham, you don't have anything to worry about. And so he goes out in the wilderness and he calls people out there because he had something new to teach them. And what he had to teach them is found in verse 6, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. The salvation of God is a person. It's the Lord Jesus. And he was getting them ready for the coming Savior. Now let's get very specific in verse 7, the prophet's proclamation. He said, so he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. That means a nest of snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, when I started seminary years ago, one of the first classes I took was Preaching 101. And they teach you how to preach and are supposed to. And uh, I remember the first textbook I read in that class, chapter one, by a very famous person most of you heard of. He said that the key to preaching is that when you go before a new audience, you gotta win them over. And so he suggested telling a funny anecdote when you're preaching to kind of, you know, people are kind of tense when there's a new preacher. So if you tell something funny, people lower their defenses and you're more likely to connect with them. John apparently did not take that class, okay? <laughs> because first rattle out of the box, you brood of vipers, you a bunch of rattlesnakes. Now the gospel of John tells us he was speaking specifically to the scribes and Pharisees. And they had sent some spies out apparently to try to, Trip him up the same way they did with Jesus. And he, he recognized what they were doing. And the, the image there is of, of a, a brush fire. If you've ever been out in West Texas at the rattlesnake roundup, sometimes they'll set a fire and the snakes will come scurrying out, right? Well, that's what's happened. The fire that's been set is John's preaching of the wrath of God, and the snakes are starting to slither away from it. And he calls them on that. He says, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Do you find that John only preaches repentance, he preaches judgment? And I will tell you this, it seems that preaching on hell was as unpopular in John's day as it is in ours as it was in the days of the Old Testament prophets. Yet Paul told the young pastor Timothy to preach the word in season and out of season, right? When it's convenient and when it's not. When people believe it and when they don't. When they want to hear it and when they stop their ears. Just because a message is unpopular is no reason to believe that it's not true. John says... God's wrath is coming. In fact, he he seems to be indicating that it's right at the door. Remember what Amos said in his first chapter when he was talking about the day of the Lord? He said "The the lion is roaring, right? And the roar of a lion would strike fear in anyone who heard it. Well, John uses a different imagery. He says the axe is already laid to the root. The image there is of a a woodsman, he's got a sharp ax and spits on his hands, rubs them together and grabs the handle and he's measuring that tree to see where he'll strike the first blow. And the woodsman in this account is God himself and he's about to let the ax of his judgment fall. And he says, you better do something because he said, every tree that does not bear fruit is chopped down and cast where? In the fire. I think that's an image of hell. Hell. You saw a pastor don't preach on hell. Jesus did. Jesus said much more about hell than he ever did about heaven. He taught it as real and not a metaphor. And I believe John the Baptist taught it that way. And he was warning people to avoid the fires of hell. And not everyone appreciated it. Not everyone likes to be told they're a sinner. Herod didn't like it, did he? And it ultimately cost him his head. If you preach on hell today, people will think you a fanatic or a fool. And no doubt many in John's day thought the same thing. And please don't believe because we're 2,000 years historically ahead of the action of this chapter 3 that people are any different today than they were then. You see, in John's day there were about four groups of religious folk. There were the Pharisees that Jesus had so many interactions with. The Pharisees were actually... Theological conservatives like most of us, they believe the Bible is true. In fact, they thought they had a monopoly on it, though, and they were the ones who interpreted it. And they began to add to it and add to the laws extra burdens. And Jesus comes on the scene and rebukes them for that. And says, you continue to add these burdens that you yourself are not willing to follow. And so that's why Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you what? Rest. Rest because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And the people loved to hear that because they were worn out trying to please the Pharisees. The Pharisees had sucked all the joy right out of serving the Lord. And Jesus rebuked them for that. Now now there were some other religious folk called the Sadducees. They were the religious liberals. They didn't believe the Bible was true. In fact, they didn't believe in heaven or hell or angels. They were interested in what they could get out of it financially primarily. Many of them had snuggled up close to the Roman authorities and made deals and contracts and were enriching themselves through this partnership. Then you had a third group, the Zealots. These were the religious fanatics. They were terrorists, really. Many of them carried around weapons, swords and knives in their sleeves and anytime they had a target of opportunity, like a Roman soldier, they would sneak up behind him and, Stab him. Does it surprise you know that Jesus had one of those guys in his inner circle? Simon Zelotes was a zealot. He came from this party of terrorists. And then you had the Essenes who lived out in the wilderness. A lot of people think John must have had some interaction with them, though the Bible doesn't tell us that. They were the folks that said, we're going to disassociate ourselves with all these groups, and we're going to live as monks out in the wilderness, contemplate the scriptures. Now you fast forward to today. Don't we have those groups today? Don't we have people that that believe the Bible and yet don't live it? Don't we have people who deny the truth of the Bible and yet use it for their own enrichment? Don't we have people who are religious terrorists who use religion as a covering for their own sin? And don't we have people that says, I'm scrapping it all and moving to Montana? Yeah, we have all those groups. And so humanity has not changed very much in 2,000 years. And so John is speaking a message of repentance into an atmosphere that's much like our own. And the point of my saying that is that's the same message we must preach, right? People have not changed and the message has not changed. We preach a message of repentance and faith. And by the way, any preacher who claims to have preached the gospel but leaves out repentance has not preached the gospel. I think sometimes in our haste to see people come forward and, and be saved, we, we tell them the good news without telling them the bad news, right? That they are a sinner and they must turn from their sin. And, and so people come and they say, I'll sign up for some of this Jesus. And then we tell them later, well, you can't live like that. Nobody told me that. We must tell them that. If, if we don't tell them that, we haven't told them the true gospel. Because here's what the Bible teaches. True repentance always, always, always results in a changed life. True repentance always results in a changed life. John called all those he baptized to bear fruit, keeping with repentance. He's not calling them out of one works-based salvation system to another works-based salvation system. But he's saying if you're truly born again, if you're truly cleansed, if you're truly repentant, your life is gonna change. Isn't that what James the brother of Jesus taught in his epistle when he said faith without works is it's dead. It's not a true faith. John says the axe is already laid to the tree. Judgment is near. Every tree that does not bear fruit is chopped down. So what John is saying is the evidence of true salvation is not that you've been baptized. It wasn't then and it isn't today. It was not that Years ago in a revival meeting, you walked the aisle and filled out a card. It's not that you wrote your name and a date in front of grandma's Bible. Then and today, the true evidence of true salvation is fruit. Jesus says, if you abide in me, you'll bear fruit and much fruit. Paul identified the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, and peace. That's what Peter taught. The, on the day, of the, Penteco- the day of Pentecost, those men who were pricked in their heart by his message says, What shall we do? He says, Repent. It's what Paul taught. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians is one of our favorite books around here. And you know that the first three chapters tell us who we are as Christians. It tells us we're raised to be seated with Christ in heavenly places. And then immediately as chapter 4 begins, Paul turns his attention to practical living. He says, now that you are saved, here's how you ought to live. And this is what he says, Ephesians 4.1, Therefore, that is as a result of your conversion, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. All he's saying there is what John said to his followers, go and produce fruit, meet with repentance. That is, live out what you say. And and he describes it, verse 2, humility, gentleness, patience, Tolerance with other people. And and then he gets very specific over in verse 28 of chapter four. And he says, yes, he who steals must steal no longer. Verse 25, he says, lay aside falsehood. This is not very complicated, folks. He's saying, if if you're a liar, tell the truth. If you're a thief, quit stealing and go to work. That's it, that's repentance, right? It's turning from one direction and going the other. If you're cheating on your wife, stop it and be faithful. Whatever sin you're involved in, turn from it and go in the opposite direction. Began to live for Christ and, and bear fruit for his glory. And back in John chapter 3, there were three groups of people that come to him and they specifically want to know, what about us? And so the first group's kind of just the crowd. They said, what shall we do? And he says, if a man has two tunics, share with one who has none. If you have food, do the same. That's for all of us. And I think fundamentally, he's saying shift your attention from the material to the spiritual. I told you before, one of the first things we try to teach our four children in our home is to love people and use things. But man, in his unredeemed nature, does the opposite, right? He uses people and loves things. We are to use things and love people once we're converted. That's all, Paul, uh, that's all John is saying. If you have more than you need, share it with your brother. And so then the tax collectors come. Now, the tax collectors were a special kind of sinner. They were Jewish people who had used their position to turn on their own Jewish brothers for, for greed. They would contract with the Roman government to collect taxes. And the contract would say, well, you are required to collect X amount of taxes in this district. And anything above that, they put in their own pocket. So they were incentivized to be crooked. And they were. And so a tax collector became synonymous with a crook, a cheat. And the tax collector said, what shall we do? And he says, only collect as much as you required." In other words, don't cheat people financially. The soldiers come along and they said, what should we do? And he says, don't take money from anyone by force. The implication is that's what they were doing, right? They were shaking down businesses. Don't accuse anyone falsely. They were using their authority. To abuse it. Be content with your wages. That is, don't cause trouble for your supervisors. That is, whatever sin you're involved with, stop it. Go in the opposite direction. Show that you are indeed repentant. My message hasn't changed today. If you're a police officer, be an honest one. If you're an IRS worker, be an honest one. If you're a school teacher... Be a hard-working one. If you're a pastor, be a faithful one, right? This is what he's saying. Have the right attitude towards your place in the world. The only way to have that right attitude is have your heart changed. He's not asking them to tie their shoes a little tighter and pull themselves up by their bootstraps. He's saying you can't do that by yourself. The only way you can do it is if your heart has been changed. The evidence that your heart has been changed is that you produce fruit in your life. Now let's get real specific. What about you? Is there any fruit in your life? Any evidence to prove that you're a Christian? Had a dear lady in her 80s come to me about a month ago, maybe two months now. She says, Pastor, I've confessed all my life that Jesus lived, that he died, and he rose again. I've known that intellectually, but I've never received him as Lord. I, I, I can't think of one ounce of fruit in my life in right in my office, she prayed to receive Christ and was saved and baptized in this church in her 80s because she recognized the evidence of true salvation was not intellectual assent to historic facts. The evidence of true salvation is a changed heart which leads to a changed life. What about you? You say, Pastor, I've been coming to church all my life. So had those Jewish people. You say, Pastor, my, my, my dad was a deacon in this church. Well, so... Were the Pharisees. They could point to Abraham as their ancestor. Didn't amount to anything. John said, you personally must turn from your personal sin, recognize your personal guilt, and be saved. That's how you receive the King. Have you received Jesus as Lord and Savior? If you have, the evidence of that will be a changed life, meaning the fruit of the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And Lord, the the word sometimes rebukes us. It's held up as a mirror and it shows us the truth about ourselves. And Father, I thank you for men like John who were bold. And that boldness from a human perspective shortened his life. And yet Lord, he knew this is what you'd called him to do because your word came to him there in the wilderness. He was a man of conviction. Lord, I pray you'd increase his tribe in this country from pulpits all across this nation. Lord, I pray the message of repentance and faith would be clear. And Father, I pray if there's even one person in this room today who has never bowed their knee to the Lordship of Jesus, who's never understood their personal need of a savior, let your spirit today through this proclaimed message would convict hearts of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. Father, would you grant them repentance and the faith to believe that they would be saved. Father, I thank you for many of my brothers and sisters here who do show forth the fruits of repentance. And and Father, may we always desire to to bear fruit and much fruit. Father, we would pray that uh, you'd send revival and awakening to this community. May it begin right here in this church and in my own heart. Pray you do it for your own namesake. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.